Good evening, everybody. I'm Pastor Brendan, and I will also be, in addition to your uh, sermon bringer, your Bible reader today. I got a message from the Marys. Aurora was on Bible reading tonight. They were not going to quite make it in time. Um, So I'll be your Aurora tonight as well. Um, If you will open up briefly to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. What? Close enough. (laughs) Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. And there were the shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you so much for this season, uh, the fact that you sent your son into this world with his ultimate destiny here to die for us, to rise again, to show us the way back to you. We ask that you're with us tonight, Lord, as we discuss this. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, we're coming into the Christmas season, therefore, all your sermons for a little while are going to be about Christmas. And I thought for a while, what would be a good thing to speak about just as we came into Christmas? Um, And I settled on this idea about what's wrong with Christmas. What are the objections we get to Christmas? Because Christmas is not a season that is universally agreed to be uh, wonderful. I like Christmas myself, but there are plenty of Christians who have objections. They worry about the nature of the way we celebrate it, either now or the reasons that we celebrate it historically. Um, certainly, plenty of non-Christians have objection to Christmas themselves. So when you look at this picture, uh, what's your immediate reaction? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Have you spotted him? <laughs> okay. Um, some people will find that, and they'll, they'll see that, and they'll think, oh, this is funny. It places Santa as a symbol of what Christmas is today, perhaps at the nativity scene of the first Christmas. And charitably, you could say he is like a fourth wise man in this picture, uh, following the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh with the smooth, refreshing flavor of Coca-Cola. Always Coca-Cola. Less charitably, you might say it elevates an irritating and fake invader into a genuine scene of the Christmas story. In fact, the genuine scene of the Christmas story. Maybe tainting or... or, uh, overshadowing, in some sense, the true meaning of Christmas. Now, as Christians, we know what the true meaning of Christmas is. It is that message that the angels brought to the shepherds in that chapter. God sent his son to earth to be the savior of this world, and that is an amazing thing and something worth singing about and worth celebrating. But there are many things about Christmas, the way we celebrate it, what it's based on, various little bits and pieces of the tradition, what it's become, that bring Christians anxiety. Sometimes it's about what Christmas began as. Does Christmas have pagan origins? How much of the stuff we do during Christmas is informed by false religions? Sometimes what Christmas has become will be the source of that worry. How much of the worship of the Lord Jesus is being subverted by secular and commercial messages? 
And so I thought it would be fun to talk about these big objections to Christmas and why we celebrate despite these objections. So, the first of these two big ideas is what I call the pagan objection. This is the idea that Christmas has pagan origins and therefore we shouldn't be jumping at the idea of celebrating it quite so quickly. You probably heard this idea before that it used to be a, a, um, an older festival that Christians took uh, away from the, the pagans when the Christians were coming through the empire. The story goes that the celebration that we call Christmas used to be a different pagan festival. Instead of celebrating the birth of Jesus, they were celebrating the winter solstice. Uh, being the shortest day of the year and therefore important to a number of religions that worship the sun in some fashion. They would say that um, all of the trappings that come with the modern Christ Christmas imagery, the wreaths, the snow, the, uh, the holly, the mistletoe, all of that is part of a pre-Christian nature and sun worship and the worship of false gods. And when the Emperor Constantine shows up in the year 306, he uses the rising popularity of Christianity in the empire to seize power. He declares the official religion to be Christianity, and then he forces the empire more or less to start celebrating Jesus on this important day instead of the uh, earlier pagan gods. The logic follows, therefore, that Christmas didn't begin as a celebration of Jesus' birth, Therefore, Christmas today isn't a celebration of Jesus' birth. Therefore, Christmas today is a pagan festival, and Christians should not participate because it brings glory to false gods. How much truth is there to that idea? Because there's plenty of Christians, some whole denominations, in fact, of Christians, who decide the idea of Christmas is too entangled with false religions and these kind of old pagan ideas to really support wholeheartedly. And no Christian wants to support false gods or to dig up old pagan religion and put it on display. So is there really enough to worry about here? Well, I would say, yeah, there is enough truth in it that it's worth talking about and thinking about. I've made a list of some of the big ones there, and then for fun I've given them each a sort of a subtitle, like a 1950s murder mystery. Um, because you know who I am by now. Um, <laughs> The first objection is about December 25th, bad air day. Um, this is this idea that December 25th as an actual date is uh, a celebration of something other than the birthday of Jesus and then it was subverted. You know? It's not really Jesus' birthday, we just sort of stuck Jesus' birthday on it because we were trying to, to nick a perfectly good pagan holiday. Um, historically, this day has been, at various times and, and places in history, been celebrated as a, a festival or a birthday for um, Hindu god Krishna, Egyptian gods uh, Osiris and Horus, the Greek god Heracles, also known as Hercules, um, and some others. There's a lot of competition for this day uh, as an important day. And, uh, more importantly than that, it's sometimes been significant for pagan cultures worshipping Freya, a Scandinavian goddess whose celebration is called Yule. You may hear that term floating around in some Christmas carols about the Yule Tide or the season of Yule. On top of that, December 25th was chosen as the feast day to celebrate Mithras. Mithras was a fairly new Roman god who popped up uh, not terribly long after Jesus' day. And he was the, the son of the sun, like the child of the sun, of the unconquered sun, Sol Invictus, as they called him. And additionally, December 25th, or thereabouts, was the feast of Saturnalia in the Roman Empire, a feast that honored the old Roman god Saturn, which was kind of like an opposites day celebration where uh, masters would serve their slaves and the rich would honor the poor. 
which sounded pretty nuts. Um, so does Jesus really have a right to claim this crowded day of pagan worship? Do we really have a reason to believe this is in some way more Christ's day than anyone else's? There is a little bit of evidence to suggest that Jesus maybe was born on the 25th of December. There's some, some recent archaeological finds where they say, oh, Jesus born on the 25th of December. There's not a lot of it. It's not very strong. He was probably born some other time in the year. It does seem like this celebration was introduced to overlap with the pagan holidays, hoping to one day entirely replace them. And here we are, mission accomplished. So yeah, there's some truth to that idea. What about the Christmas tree? Dangerous pines. Um, well, pines and evergreens, like in the, um, the wreaths that we have, they uh, have that evergreen quality, right? They're a tree that doesn't brown, that doesn't go through an autumnal stage. And so they have a ancient pagan symbolism for sort of eternal life or, or living on beyond death. And there's a good argument that the modern Christmas tree, however, is traced back to a Christian story. That of a guy called... Uh, historically called Saint Boniface, or as we Baptists call him, Boniface. Um, Boniface's story is that he's taking the gospel to the ancient Germanic tribes, eighth century or so. Um, he encounters one such tribe, and that tribe has a huge oak tree dedicated to the god Thor. And they believe that Thor would not tolerate anyone interfering with it. It was a sacred tree for them. Boniface cuts it down. Nothing happens to him. The tribe concludes that his god must be greater than Thor, Everyone's happy, um, more or less, um, except Thor. The, the later, somewhat embellished version of this story um, is a little bit more dramatic. They'll see that Boniface um, approaches the tree, swings his axe, he makes one nick, and then bam, a bolt of lightning flies out of the sky and strikes down the tree where he's nicked it with the axe, toppling this oak tree with Thor's own lightning, which he was meant to control. And from that stump then spontaneously sprouts not another oak tree, but a pine tree. And look at its triangular shape and how it points to the heavens. And therefore, Christmas tree. Um, <laughs> that story may be somewhat exaggerated. It is possible that Boniface's missionary journey was exactly that kind of miraculous. I don't want to discount that. Plenty of missionary journeys are that miraculous. But it's also not crazy to think that this pre-existing pagan reverence for these evergreen trees just kind of rolled its way into Christian tradition. It was a tree they used to celebrate before they came to Christ. Probably became the tree they used to celebrate after they came to Christ. So does the Christmas tree have some pagan origins? We can't in honesty say no, absolutely not. What about holly? Holly is a, um, dead and buried. I'm too proud of those. I'm not going to stop reading them out. That's not what this is about. Um, holly's not something we see much of in Australia because it uh, doesn't really grow, grow very well down here. Um, but we do see it on Christmas cards. It's very much a visual feature of the Christmas season. Those little spiky leaves and the red berries. Christians have used them across the world to deck their halls during this season for hundreds of years. Um, it has been said that the, the pointed leaves can symbolize the crown of thorns to which Jesus was subjected and the red berries, the drops of blood he spilt as a result of that thorn of crowns. Crown of thorns. Um, holly is another evergreen plant. However, it has the same kind of pagan significance about um, eternal life. It has some ideas of warding off evil spirits in, uh, and decorating Celtic shrines year-round with its greenness. Uh, mistletoe is another non-Australian but... Um, very Christmassy tradition, uh, predates Christian cultures, particularly 
Um, the, the Celtic peoples, those guys saw mistletoe as a symbol of fertility. Um, and this idea survived and made its way into the Christian era, becoming a decoration under which lovers are expected to kiss during the Christmas season. This was a tradition invented by the serving class in England, um, creating the myth that a man was allowed to kiss any woman he found standing under the mistletoe and that bad luck would befall any woman who refused that kiss. Something of a one-sided deal. At the time, considered uh, cheerfully flirtatious today, more than a little creepy. Um, but still definitely part of the Christmas tradition as we know it to be popularized. And definitely with a little bit of a pagan origin to it. Gingerbread men. That's an interesting idea. Innocent treats? Hardly. Their true purpose is diabolical. Um, not really. A little bit. The first time they show up in modern history, or something close to modern history, is when Queen Elizabeth makes these gingerbread men in the likeness of some of her courtiers and her friends. Um, but long before that, there were pagans celebrating Saturnalia, this sort of April Fool's Day type opposite day feasts. And during that time, they would eat man-shaped cookies, apparently in a substitution for the actual human sacrifice they used to do even further back in ancient history. So when you eat a gingerbread man, you are complicit in human sacrifice. Think about that. The feasting, also a part of Saturnalia, celebrated at the same time of year. Coincidence? I think not. Jesus, well, Jesus' earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, they weren't stuffing their faces on the night that Jesus was born. Why should we? Hmm? Who knows? Gift giving, yet another feature of Saturnalia. Romans would give each other these little wax tokens and stone gifts. Simple symbolic gifts. The more simple the gift, the greater it spoke for the depth of the relationship. So then the verdict... Does the holiday celebration we call Christmas have pagan roots in the way it is celebrated? Yes, absolutely. There are bits and pieces from this holiday that come from Celtic and Mediterranean religions that used to be associated with false gods. Follow-up question, who cares? Answer, mostly no one. And I mean that seriously, not particularly flippantly. It's not that, not that it's a foolish idea to think about this. Any believer who gives a moment's thought to all these non-Christian things being part of a prime Christian holiday should be at least mildly shocked. But no one celebrates Christmas with the intention of worshiping pagan gods. No one has that in their mind. No one is bowing down to worship their Christmas tree. Uh, no one is praising Mithras or the unconquered sun when they light candles at night. No one is asking the woodland spirits of English forests um, for a boon of fertility when they place fake holly in their fake Christmas wreath. And the handful of folks today who do continue to call themselves pagans tend to greatly resent Christmas because of the way it emptied all of the paganism out of some of their traditions and made them vessels for Christian worship. And that's probably the right way to think about it. Traditions and celebrations are empty vessels and they have meaning that you put into them. That's why it's possible to come to church and to sing every week and to be baptized, to live a churchy life, and to do all of this entirely, if you try very hard, without having any kind of genuine relationship with Jesus. This is the difference between form and substance. The form is the shape of the thing, the way it appears. Substance is what a thing really is, what it is at its heart. And Christmas has absolutely no pagan substance to it, although if you try really hard, you can find pagan form. And the anxiety about the traditions of this holiday having those origins seems to come out of a, almost a, a superstitious place, a belief that people can somehow be um, 
feeding or glorifying these ancient fake gods that they have never heard of when they use these forms. As if every crunched gingerbread man gave the demons who once hovered over the Saturnalia festival a special power to rise up and deceive people once again. But you can't accidentally worship false gods any more than you can accidentally worship the real one. Our relationship with God is intentional and it's personal. It's based on substance, not form. And no mistletoe or special tree can rob God of his glory unless you really, truly make an idol out of its substance. So Christmas is not about pagan gods, regardless of how some pre-Christian traditions like these have made their way into the modern holiday. But what about post-Christian traditions? This is the secular objection, the second part. Hasn't Christmas, despite wherever it came from and what it used to mean, uh, hasn't it become all about materialism and a greedy desire for presents? Um, hasn't it become um, about these, these schmaltzy ideas of togetherness and forgiving and these watered down um, just messages of niceness? Hasn't Santa driven just about all of the Jesus out of this most celebrated day? And if that's the case, then are we, as believers, complicit in taking glory away from God when we participate in a holiday that maybe, in fact, obscures the saving work of Jesus Christ more than promotes it? Are we, then, the unwitting thralls in the Coca-Cola cult of one Chris Kringle? This is kind of the opposite of the previous question. Um, the previous question was about the form. This one is about the substance. The first question says, yeah, you might be singing carols to Jesus in substance, but shouldn't we worry about the origin of these pagan forms, the shapes of things? The second question is, sure, those forms might be familiar to you and okay now, but the substance, maybe it's not there at all. Has the substance of Christmas gone that far that it's worth letting go of? Well, let's look at some of these ideas. The first of these ideas is about the presence. It's all about the presence now. The second is it's all about being commercialized. It's about shopping. It's about being compelled by companies to spend money. And the third, it's about this secular fluff like togetherness and giving. So, number one, everyone loves presence so much that the holiday has become about presence. It's a greed-driven holiday. It's become about accumulating stuff. Do you believe that? I'm gonna ask, I will, I will do the crowd participation thing. If you believe that that is what the holiday has become, would you dare raise your hand? No one. Right? Because most people understand that the presents are a part of the holiday but we really don't absorb the whole thing. That's interesting, so then why does this idea exist at all? That the presents have taken over the holiday entirely. Presents, we know, actually are kind of hard work. And lots of people have an arrangement with their friends or their family or individuals that, look, this year, don't buy me anything. I won't buy you anything. Eh, you know, we will, assure, we will be assured that we love each other, but we won't buy presents because presents can be difficult. And most people are adults. And most adults have their own money. And most adults can get most of the things they want anyway. Some people like presents a lot. They find the wrapping, the surprise, the choosing thoughtful things. They find all that very rewarding. Some people hate presents. And if you could push a button to make the gift-giving part of Christmas go away forever, they would hit that button without a second thought. 
you know, the kind of questions is what if you forget to buy and the other person buys for you? What if you buy the wrong size shoes and that kind of ruins things? What if she's already read this one? Ugh. It's all terrible. Do away with it. And I'm sure there does exist a kind of greedy person who longs for Christmas so much um, because they are hoping to amass a wealth of gifts. But most adults understand how money works. And they know that if they are lucky, if they are very lucky, they will come out the other side of Christmas only having spent the same amount of money on gifts for others as they have received in value back. Christmas is not a money-making holiday for people who aren't in the business of selling gifts. Unless you, um, I should say, usually you lose money in this exchange because you don't get the things exactly that you wanted, or you'll be given things that you wouldn't normally have gone out and purchased yourself, like three kilos of chocolates that you will work your way through over the next month, because what are you going to do, throw them out? There is a word we have for greedy people at Christmas, and we call them Scrooges, because they don't give gifts, because giving gifts is a costly thing to do, not a greedy thing to do. That's a little bit different for kids, because kids don't understand money, um, and they don't make any themselves. There's two times in a year when a child might get things they normally cannot imagine obtaining on their own power. That's birthday and Christmas. They know this very well. Sometimes they bargain with the power of them together. I know it's a big thing. Can I have it as a birthday and a Christmas present? Of course, they get nutty and excited about presents, but as long as you don't spoil them, which is something that parents are perfectly capable of doing at times other than Christmas, this can be a time of joy and appreciation. It doesn't need to be one of greed. So I don't give much value to the idea that Christmas is all about presents, but if you feel otherwise, I invite your comments after this service. But has it all become about commercialization, about that, uh, that capitalist engine to sell things, to advertise things, to get a picture of Santa Claus everywhere holding Coca-Cola in his hand? There's a turkey farming industry in Australia that basically exists for this holiday alone. There are pre-Christmas sales and post-Christmas sales. Everyone is always rushing from one place to another for some commercial purpose. Every business needs to have a Christmas party with Christmas decorations. Every year there is another raft of Christmas movies packed with toy advertisements designed to hypnotize children into that lunatic desire to get them all and to make parents feel kind of stingy and mean if they don't provide the, the picturesque Christmas morning of the bottom of the tree engulfed in a variety of sizes of gifts each with that crisp bow on top. Doesn't all of this commercialization amount to a, a worship of material things? And doesn't it, in fact, obscure the worship of Jesus? I mean, we'd have to be lying to say that it couldn't have that effect. We are pretty good at making idols. Christmas culture as a, uh, is a pretty good culture to make an idol out of if you wanted to. But presuming we are regular rational people who don't get swallowed up by shopping obsession or trying to have the most perfectly Christmassy Christmas, does any of this really sound like the substance of your actual cherished Christmas memories? Do you have vivid memories of shopping each year? Probably not. It probably all melds together. It actually becomes quite forgettable. Of course, there's a lot of shopping and a lot of turkey and a lot of advertisement. That's because Almost every human being in the Western world is all at once trying to get thoughtful presents for the people they love. That generates a lot of traffic. That's just the mechanical backdrop for what really happens to be millions of individual families trying to have a special time together. 
It in no way needs to be an idol or a threat to our faith. Things get commercial around Christmas time because Australians by and large are willing to spend money to make a holiday memorable, to make it something their family enjoys. And companies are desperate to be the ones that money is spent on, that's all. And really, when you think about your most pronounced Christmas memories, are they advertisements or their shopping, or are they memories of shared meals with loved ones, church Christmas carols, the joy of seeing family members you usually never get to see, or the bittersweet ache of not being able to be there this Christmas and having to settle for a phone call to where everyone is without you. The substance of Christmas is not the commercial clutter. That's just a big, loud, sometimes overly demanding cultural way that we celebrate the substance of Christmas. And that brings us to number three here. Sure, many people might not be driven mad by their desire for presents, and we seem to get through every Christmas without becoming consumerist zombies, but in this post-Christian society, the reason for the season, the birth of Jesus, is being hijacked by soppy, happy holidays type messages about togetherness and giving. Every generation of children's cartoons ends up with their own uh, series of Christmas episodes with the same bland stories of a Christless, sanitized Christmas. We'd better have the perfect Christmas this year. Oh no, the turkey ran away and all the presents caught fire. But the real meaning of Christmas is family and togetherness, and that's all we need. Everyone hugs, end of story. Average Australian nods, that's a nice message. Average Australian Christmas, um, Christian throws his remote at the TV and says, that's not the meaning of Christmas. The word Christ is right there in the name and gets all too angry about the whole thing. Now, there's no denying that Christmas has become more secular. There are millions of families in this country who will celebrate Christmas this year in some form without at all celebrating the birth of Christ. They will do this because they do not like Christianity, but they do like Christmas. Companies want their patronage, their patronage, and so they will sell them Christmas stuff without Christ in it. This is the... Uh, this is maybe the effect of the church playing a smaller role in the lives of all Australians. It's probably not the cause of the church playing a smaller role in the life of Australians. On Christmas this year, there are people who will go to church who don't go to church any other time. People will hear the good news of Jesus played in carols in shopping centers for a whole month. They will have nativity scenes on their front lawns. There is no other time of year that the church of Jesus has this kind of penetration into the cultural mainstream. The reason that Australia is becoming more secular has got to be due mostly to the other 364 days of the year. And the reasons why it's become more secular in those times, that's got to be pretty very, they're wildly speculated upon. Some of it's got to be the rise of evolutionary teaching in schools as if that were a credible answer to the origin of life that normally makes people think about God. We also live in an increasingly diverse country populated by more people who just don't share Christian beliefs and most people kind of want to accommodate them in some fashion rather than be confronted. 
Maybe the wider church doesn't preach the gospel clearly and is too eager to try not to offend people with the truth. Maybe the wider church has been too blunt and dogmatic and hasn't been sensitive enough to the realities of people's lives and trying to meet them like Jesus did where they are. Maybe a hundred years ago, the, a whole wave of Australia's best, most faithful, most brave, good, young Christian men marched off to war in Europe and they did so with the church's blessing and singing that they were going onward as Christian soldiers. And maybe after the machine guns and the mustard gas had killed thousands of them who would otherwise have raised Christian families and had left others cynical and doubting and trusting neither England nor her church, maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe there is a heavenly dimension to this spiritual dryness in this country that we do not understand and will not understand this side of glory. Maybe we're not trusting God and serving wholeheartedly enough. Maybe this is just a season of famine and we are meant to keep faith despite the lean harvest. But to suggest that the fact that our country increasingly celebrates Christmas in a secular way, that that is a great contributor to this problem, it's to cut off our nose to spite our face. I would say that the fact that non-Christians celebrate Christmas is a reason for us to be thankful. It opens a great many doors that we may be unaccustomed to taking advantage of. Because these are non-Christians. They are people who do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and they are looking to celebrate at the same time we are celebrating the birth of our Savior. Non-Christian friends will come over to your house, and you can pray in front of them, and it is perfectly socially acceptable in a way that it otherwise isn't throughout the year. That's incredible. That's a wonderful opportunity. And the fact that secular Australians are gathering together on Christmas Day to celebrate togetherness and generosity and thankfulness and family, sure, it's no substitute for the saving grace of Jesus Christ, but surely these are the kind of blessings that we would want to be praying onto our neighbors anyway, regardless of their faith. We should be thankful that we can share those values with them in this season and seek to make a bridge through that connection to a testimony that can help them know the God who is the author of those blessings. We shouldn't dismiss those secular Christmas ideals out of hand. They're an incredible blessing to our country, and they're the reason that thousands of people will show up to church this time next week, many of whom will be hearing the gospel message the only time they do in the year. I think I made it pretty clear that I think that the, um, the pagan origins of the Christmas forms don't matter, and the secular trappings shouldn't damage the substance for believers. You'll notice that I haven't invoked the scriptures to defend any of those points. That's because the Bible doesn't really tell us how to celebrate Christmas. It doesn't give us instruction on Christian, um, Christmas tradition. Now there's good reason to believe that Christians didn't begin to celebrate birthdays, let alone Jesus' birthday, until about 400 years after Jesus was born. So there's no scripture that speaks around this idea specifically. You have to make some logical leaps from what's there in the text. For example, the angels, when they announced Jesus' birth, um, birth, they burst forth into glorious celebration. This means Jesus' birth is worth, worth celebrating. And if it's worth celebrating once, maybe it's worth celebrating once a year. But there are plenty of Christians who won't see that as very compelling. They'll say that we're told to keep far away from pagan practices, not to try and redeem their forms. 
They might say that all of this Santa and presence and secular fluff, it does more to steal glory from God than it does to bring it to him. And I'd like to suggest that in this situation, like many others, we have a scripture that addresses this idea. I'd like to suggest that 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is applicable here as it is in so many other places. Let's look at verses 9 to 13. Paul's addressing the idea of meat sacrifice to idols and whether it's a sin to engage in what is outwardly endorsing a pagan practice in some sense, even though we know that the substance, those pagan idols, those pagan gods don't exist and have no power. Paul says, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating, an I- an idols, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way, when you sin against them in this way, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Paul is unconcerned about the pagan gods because they are toothless, powerless, existenceless nothings. And if a harmless tradition like Christmas trees gets transposed onto Christian tradition, as long as it is not a cause for a brother or a sister to stumble into sin, then so be it. As long as that tree makes no false claims about who Jesus is, then it can only be this kind of instinctive fear to reject Christmas and its celebrations on this ground. And likewise, if millions of Australians celebrate Christmas and neglect to celebrate Christ, and we celebrate with them, we are not endorsing a rejection of Christ, whether or not our Christmas cards feature reindeer at the same time. We have good reason to have assurance about the way we practice Christmas, that it honors God in this country. But we also have assurance from this passage that we ought to accommodate our brothers and sisters for whom this seasonal celebration has become a stumbling block in some form or another. May nothing come between God and his people. And may nothing come between God's people and each other. And if you cannot, in good conscience, reconcile the way you see Christmas celebrated today with the way that you see Jesus glorified, then follow your God-given conscience and do only those holy things that satisfy your spiritual conviction this season. It's better to miss out on a yearly tradition or disappoint some kids who are hoping for some presents than it is to go through the motions and do what you believe in your heart is a sin. And if you are like me and you merely have friends who um, worship our Lord but can take no joy in the Christmas season for some reason or another, then we owe them the brotherly, sisterly duty to accommodate their conscience, to not shame them or burden them with that conviction. Our first command is to love God. Our second is to love one another. And our third is to preach the gospel and to make disciples of all nations. And the tragedy of Christmas is that it's possible for us to waste this as an opportunity to evangelize. It was the fact that the the Christmas celebration had these pagan trappings in the first place that allowed Christianity to uh, begin to dominate the culture of the Roman Empire. Because Christians and pagans were celebrating at the same time, but the gospel message won out 
And now Saturn isn't a god, it's a planet no one cares about. And today, this Christmas, Christians and secular Australians are going to share this holiday. And many worry that the secular message will win out. But I think that we have reason to believe that this isn't the truth of Jesus leaking out of Christmas. It's the spirit of Christmas and the savior that the Christmas represents penetrating into the lives of the people who desperately want to reject him. You know, we can read a line of, uh, of census data that will say something like, there are this many million Australians who are only willing to attend church on Christmas. And most days of the year we can shake our heads and say, it's so sad that some people have so little faith they're only willing to come to church once a year. But at Christmas, we can read the same thing. Millions of Australians are willing to attend church on Christmas. This is amazing. There are people who freeze the gospel out of every part of their life, but are so enchanted by the goodness and the celebration and the, the wholesome community love that the church does best, that on Christmas they might actually go to church if you invite them. What an incredible opportunity. And if you are convicted in your heart that the celebration of Christmas in fact, robs God of his glory, then God bless you, do as you are convicted to do. But if you're like me, and you like Christmas, even the silly berries that have no scriptural meaning, even the secular, mushy, and um, togetherness messages, and the turkey, and the meaningless things like that, maybe even some elements of fat men in red suits with an inordinate fondness for Coca-Cola, then don't underestimate the value of this God-given gift. The gift of the fact that you and your neighbors who don't normally come to church have this common ground. So who do you know in your life, in your friends, your workmates, your schoolmates, who doesn't know Christ, but who likes Christmas enough they might actually come along to next week's carol celebration if you ask them? Or even better, who might even come along to a fairly normal Christmas service at the actual church? And there they might see a group of people who, like them, are celebrating the season, who have all the hallmarks of a loving family, who lift up and praise, not just the form and the fluff of the holiday, but the real substance that gives it all color and life, the birth of the Savior of the world. If we're honest, Australia is a country that's usually pretty hostile to the message of the gospel. But this month, leading up to this holiday, God opens the whole place up with an opportunity to praise his son by name. Let's make sure we use it this Christmas. And let's pray. Father God, the changing to this season only reminds us that you don't change. You're a wonderful, loving God from all eternity and this Christmas we are celebrating what we know all year round that you love the world so much you sent your son to die to save your people in it. We thank you, Lord. As individuals in the body of your people, we might experience this holiday differently. Some of us will focus on the celebrations extensively, guide them, Lord, to keep their minds on the coming of your son, the reason that we celebrate. Some of us will be part of Christmas celebrations with neighbors and family and workmates. Many of those celebrations will not mention the birth of your son at all. 
Give those of us who are there the courage and the wisdom to speak the truth of the Christmas story in those places to give glory to you. And this Christmas, Lord, some believers will not be celebrating at all. We ask, Father, that you are with them all the same, building up their strength and faith and making them more Christ-like as they try and act in obedience. Whatever we are found to be doing this season, Lord, open our eyes to the opportunities around us to speak the good news. May we as individuals and as your church never miss a chance to tell someone who is willing to hear the amazing story of the God who became a child so that we could become children of God. And we ask this blessing in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's all just stand again and worship.